Welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from the people, projects, businesses, campaigns, communities, and so on, who are striving for a more sustainable and progressive world. I call them the archipelagos of a possible future. You'll hear their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and hopefully you'll walk away with some actionable advice to start your own archipelago. Because what the world needs more than anything right now is more archipelagos of a possible future. So have a listen and join me. We can scale by going smaller, um, which means really at the end of the day, like focusing on finding that group of eight to 12 people um, and then reproducing that group, making it self-reproducing is the best possible way, right? Um, so that you, you, know, you have these groups that are taking action and being effective and then cloning themselves and finding more people uh, to join the party. That's, you know, that's the kind of work we gotta do. Hey everybody, this is part two of my conversation with Adam Bailey of Dogwood. In this conversation, we talk about their distributed leadership model and how it contributes to Dogwood's ability to turn on a dime. We talk about their organizing process, how they organize communities using the snowflake model. And we get into some tactical questions and ideas and government relations ideas near the end there. As always, with all my Working Together podcast episodes, I try to make them as practical as possible so that you walk away with the tools you need to change your worlds. I hope you enjoy it. Let's start with talking a bit more about uh, this idea of agility that we that we touched on earlier in our conversation. Um, and yeah, if you could kind of elaborate a bit more about what you mean by Dogwood's agility. Sure. Uh, agility is key, I think, in this uh, world that we operate in. And I, you know, I've been talking about how... Um, you know, the one key thing that I've learned doing this work so far is that if you wait six months, the landscape is going to look completely different from how you thought it was going to look uh, the year before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're heading into a time where, uh, for example, I know um, the National Energy Board is due to release their um, regulatory review review um, again at the end of February. And that's going to completely change uh, the landscape in terms of how we move forward with uh with our sectors and pipelines campaign, um, or even closer, uh, you know, we're going to have an announcement about uh, what's happening in the uh, proportional representation referendum, mm-hmm. uh, probably before the end of December, uh, and that's going to change the landscape completely, especially uh, you know, sort of at the strategic level. So, uh, you know, in order to do this kind of work and be effective at it, we have to come up with a model that um, can rapidly change and reconfigure um, to take advantage of uh, the new opportunities that present themselves um, and also just sort of to, you know, steer with the currents of, of various different politics. Uh, and it's interesting because, of course, you know, uh, other places that I've worked have been uh, very much tied to, uh, you know, to institutional um, uh, structures and formats. And, you know, you have to, if you haven't planned something 18 months in advance, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that works, that works in some situations. Um, but it, it often, I mean, it, it makes me wonder, you know, in, in a political situation where things are changing and flexing all the time, um, how, how does a long-term institution even really 
keep going. Like I think about the bureaucracy and how much how difficult it must be for them. Um, you know, even like the energy bureaucracy at the federal level, how difficult it must be for them to keep track of all this back and forth thing um, that's happening. Uh, you know, in in the energy world, not only on the pipeline front, but I mean, even you know what's happening with the price of oil these days. Uh, how hard it must be for them to balance the institutional momentum of their work and uh, the changing realities on the ground all the time. So, uh, yeah, when I talk about agility, I talk about our our ability to just react fast uh, and the way that we as an organization have um, have organized ourselves um, to act fast when the time is right. And I'm wondering, Adam, if you can give me some some concrete examples of that from your from your time in Dogwood. Uh, how many years have you been working there now? Well, it's been a year and a half now. A year and a half. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I've been a supporter since 2012. So what's that? So six you, years now at this yeah, point. Yeah. So you even know kind of the history before then as well. So you know any history on on those shifts that you've seen? That'd be that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the the most straightforward shift really was the one where uh, you know <laughs> was the one where we saw the. Um, uh, changing government at the provincial level. Um, and it wasn't really the sort of straightforward change uh, that we would have expected. Um, you know, it wasn't your standard winner-take-all situation where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we went from a liberal government to an NDP government. Um, you know, we had this sort of almost two-month period, uh, long drawn-out period of, uh, you know, playing the political drama to have that transition of power. Um, and then also having this very unusual uh, confidence and supply agreement uh, come into place. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, whereas we had started in May sort of going like, well, a 50-50 shot, you know, we might get an NDP government, we might get, we might get a liberal government, and, and we definitely have an understanding of what the political implications for each would be and how we would uh, how we would plan to act and to react uh, so that our campaigns can be, uh, you know, won um, under both of those different situations. Instead, we ended up with this weird third configuration um, that, uh, that we really had to take stock of um, in a very short amount of time and uh, and then figure out, okay, you know, now that now that all of this is down in ink, black letters about, you know, what needs to be um, what needs to be done in order to keep the government alive, um, how can we make sure that we keep both of those parties to their agreement mm-hmm. and make sure that our, our politicians are living up to the agreement that they struck? Um, so it was a great opportunity, um, but it means that we, you know, we sort of have to change our pace for sure. Interesting. Yeah, and then of course I remember talking to you a few uh, a few months when the federal government decided to basically buy the pipeline. Uh, <laughs> that one. No one saw that coming. That was. Uh, I mean, really, what is it? Nineteen seventy four. We're going to nationalize a piece of energy infrastructure. That's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, didn't see that coming. So, but you know, but again, right? You have to learn how to react to that. And you know, on the one hand, it's great. I mean, it's essentially victory on the uh, the corporate front, um, where we did, in fact, uh, get Kinder Morgan to pull out. Um, we just didn't expect that the uh, the federal government would step up. And so, um, again changing the playbook, right? Um, mm-hmm. we're, now we're mobilizing yet more comments to the National Energy Board by fax, because that's the only way they'll accept comments, um, you know, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, you have to change the playbook, and you have to do it fast. Crazy. Well, I'm glad you guys are, are you know, practicing your sprints and, and, and being the uh, <laughs> agile organization that you are. Um, you know, just coming from having worked in bureaucracies, I can say for sure that 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 18 month time window that you referenced, I mean, that's very much a reality for institutions. Uh, I mean, even longer than that, 
just changes sure. in legislation and things like this. They take a long time, and so there's there isn't um, there there is responsiveness for sure in those institutions, oh, yeah. but it's very much like a slow responsiveness, and it's it depends on you know who who the stakeholders are that are actively engaged with the government and so on and so forth. And sometimes governments, you know, they they get pretty picky and choosy about who they want to call a stakeholder for a given uh, project Mm -hmm. or something like this so that can add further interesting nuances to the problems but um but yeah that's totally on point and so it seems like having an organization that's able to respond and be flexible in this way kind of depends a bit on how should I put this, like your own internal workings, like how, how mm-hmm. does dogwood, how does dogwood work? How does dogwood work from the <laughs> inside to be able to be that quick and that fast moving? It's cultural. Ultimately, like I, I think, you know, and I don't want this to boil down to a conversation about like, oh, well, you know, bureaucratic culture versus non-for-profit culture. No, 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 it's not like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's about developing a culture um, in, in, uh, you know, within the group, within the organization, um, that really uh, does two things. It's um, uh, there's deep understanding and respect between the uh, the people who work together, um, which is not necessarily an easy thing to build, given that we uh, you know we have uh, two different offices in two different cities plus several remote staff as well. Um, so, you know, really putting the effort into making sure that you know who you're working with uh, and understand where they're coming from and where their thought process is coming from. Um, and on the second hand, uh, really having faith, strong faith and confidence in uh, your coworkers' uh, abilities and, uh, and wisdom that they bring into the job. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we are able to do is because we're a group of, you know, 20 staff and, um, and you know, less than 100 uh, key volunteers, um, you know, it's it's on a scale where we really can have that sort of interpersonal connection, and that's one of the things that allows us to do it so well. Um, but it, it really it comes down to that culture piece of of knowing, uh, respecting, and understanding the people that you're working with in a really serious way. Um, it allows you to make good decisions collectively. Hmm. And and that allows you guys to be somewhat decentralized or or distributed as you've called it uh to me before this distributed leadership model is that basically what you're describing the culture well uh, yeah i mean that's sort of the culture behind that in a big way um i don't you know and i think that enables uh some of the things that come from there um the distributed leader leadership model is is uh a a slightly different thing and and maybe a, a slightly different subject um but it is also a really interesting thing about how this all works where rather than having your standard sort of um, executive director and board format, um, we instead have an executive leadership team and board. Um, and, uh, and that seems, that for me is a really fascinating new way of uh, building a leadership model for an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I think contributes to our agility to a certain, res- uh, certain, certain respect. Um, but also just there's like a, a certain responsiveness in there, right? Where it's like, I'm really only one step away from leadership at any given time. Um, because, you know, my director is uh, available in my office, um, at any time. Um, and so it's not, you know, decisions don't have to go like way up a chain and way back down a chain. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's very, very flat and, uh, and that allows us, I think, to make smart decisions and fast decisions in a really cool way. And the decisions rest on my shoulders in a lot of ways, you know, 
um, I think a lot of other organizations that I've worked at, um, you know, you have responsible for a responsibility for a, a small slice of the pie, uh, but a lot of key decision making has to happen um, at a higher level, right? So you need to send suggestions up, and you wait a little while for other people to consider them, and then you get instructions back. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I just feel like the work here is much more collaborative, right? Mm. Um, we're able to. Uh, you know, communicate our various uh, different opinions and, and communicate the needs that we have in order to get the job done. Um, but we're uh, on top of that, we're able to receive feedback on uh, on our position um, pretty instantaneously. Instantaneously, um, so it really it's it's empowering for everybody who's working here. love love uh, that idea of a distributed uh, leadership model but it sounds so fancy don't it um, and and you, you often wonder just you know how, how can what does this look like in practice well here's here's a simple little exercise that I'm pulling out of Derek Sivers uh, book um, anything you want that I think uh, is just a helpful way to think about how to delegate responsibility how to give more decision-making power to people in your organization if you have one or are in one and you're near the top or at the top or whatever. So I love this this basic recipe here. So uh, he decided that he was doing too much work and he needed to start delegating things. So one day he came in to the office um, and somebody came and asked him a question and normally he would just answer the question right away and be like okay yeah that particular unique scenario okay yeah so do this and then do that and then if you can get back to the customer and tell them this is, this is why we're returning it blah 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 th this is how you do that thing right and so he would give people the direction that was his norm but this time came into the office somebody asked him a question and instead of answering right away he gathered everybody around answered the question in front of everybody and explained his philosophy behind it like okay so here's here's how I would answer this and this is why right we do this because of this and da -da 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 -da, and then make sure that everyone understands the thought process right so did you get that does that make sense do you understand why I'm doing that and then he would ask somebody to write it in the manual the manual uh, that they started to create for all of these questions and then let everybody know that they can decide this without him the next time they run into that question so with this process uh, after about two months of doing this there were no more questions he didn't get any more questions from his staff um, because they were all in the manual uh, and they all had the answer in the manual and they had the philosophy the reason in the manual why why you would answer in that way why why you would do something in the way that uh, that Derek would do something in his company 
So that's an interesting little little uh, five-step practice that you can uh, try out maybe if you're in an organization and you're struggling with this idea of decentralizing authority somewhat and, and giving more power and authority in the decision-making sphere to the folks around you, which in turn kind of helps free you up to work on other things rather than being the sole um, uh, nexus point for making decisions. So just a thought, uh, but I thought I would throw it in there for everybody. Next up, we're going to continue talking with Adam here about their snowflake organizing model. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it and, and a bunch of other stuff too. Okay. into the details about how this neighborhood uh, organizing works, how, how, how you do it effectively. Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing is to find the hand raiser, right? Um, so you got to sort of, you know, you, you got to show up in a community and, uh, and basically uh, start pitching, you know, start saying, hey, um, and, and I'll take as our example, uh, you know, like the ban big money campaign that we went on, right, where we basically uh, looked at this two years ago and we said, hey, you know, um, there's a lot of money flowing into BC politics and we need to, you know, find a way to rein that in somewhat so that uh, the voice of local people can be heard more strongly. Um, and so we started, you know, we had some town halls. We, uh, you know, we advertised a couple of um, fun, you know, presentations and panels and, uh, and conversations. Um, and, and we invited people to come in and check it out. Uh, and then, you know, you go in and you do that in your community and, uh, and then you ask people to raise their hands and then you look for those folks who are the ones who are willing to put their hand up and step forward and really take action. Um, you know, having, having heard the call that you're putting out there, um, you start with them and they're the people who, uh, who you then need to organize into uh, that neighborhood group. And you give them the skills and the tools to go out and find more people like themselves. So, you know, I mean, if you were to do this, if, for example, you were to, you know, do this all across uh, the country, you know, you'd want to uh, find a community in every single riding across the country. And you would want to, uh, you know, have a town hall or um, have a community discussion or even, you know, just have a concert with some friends um, with, you know, with uh, the meaning uh, being we need to organize a conversation around climate. And then you look for the hand raisers and then you give those hand raisers the tools to go out and find their team of about a dozen people who are going to be active and motivated and working together. Um, and then you go from there. And so those active and motivated people, um, I want to keep, I want to keep going here. I want to, so what yeah. do, when they go from there, what do they do? You mentioned earlier that they're, you know, they're maybe, uh, they're setting up a booth at an event and educating yep. people and looking for more folks to sign up. But then they're also, uh, you know, talking with their uh, local representatives about yep. the issue. So they're they're yep. setting up appointments and meetings with people. Now, a lot of organizations 
they seem to have like a really uh, tight grip on their messaging and on their vision and things like this. So are you, mm. are you guys like that in any way? Are you saying, okay, this is, <laughs> if you're going to go and talk to these people, don't start going off about this other thing, do this or like, or is it more like <laughs> you guys know what you believe in and you know what you want to do. So we trust you go and do it. How, like, how do you negotiate that? Sure. I mean, it's kind of both, right? Um, you, you know, you have to you have to do some coaching. I think you know anybody mm-hmm. um, would want to be coached before they went into a high stakes uh, conversation like that. Um, and that's you know, and that's where we start to get like our you know our staff organizers mm-hmm. um, involved in the conversation for sure. Um, and uh, you know, and that sort of you know that's where you get key messaging and stuff like that. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, trust has to be there, right? Where this organization is not a top-down kind of thing. Um, you know, this this really is people just coming together to to speak what's on their mind and to find the solutions that are going to work for them locally. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, coaching in terms of like, you know, you really are going to want to stick to um, this message about tankers, and you know, this is probably what the politician is going to say as a response. Um, and here are some ways that you might want to really push your issue in the front of that response, because, of course, you know, let's keep in mind that, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, certainly if they're a, a politician who represents the party in power, um, likely they have their own very uh, strict messaging control uh, from the PMO or the mm-hmm. uh, premier's office, depending who. Um, so, you know, so they've got certain things that they need to say. We need to be able to coach people to uh, respond to that and really get a, a solid answer. Um, but also, you know, coach people to have a, a productive meeting where, uh, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, uh, you know, they are heard by their representative and there maybe even is, a, you know, a takeaway for a couple of follow-up action items, which would be great. So it's kind of between the two, right? I mean, we're not delivering a bunch of top-down messaging, but at the same time, um, you know, we're talking to our people in the field all the time about uh, what's going on there in the world. And, and uh, you know, with some luck, uh, they're, you know, delivering the kind of messaging that uh, everybody else in the field is delivering, too. I think I think another element, too, as well, I've, I've uh, you know, I've seen uh, meetings like this from the other side, right, from the staff side. Sure. Um, and uh, not necessarily sat through them, but seeing the outcomes of them, seeing the results. Mm. And sometimes it's just, okay, uh, that then becomes a caucus discussion. So it, it, it becomes a conversation cool. that, that that minister might be having with his or her colleagues. Um, and, and then it kind of stays. I mean, that's pretty rad. It, it, it is pretty rad, but there's this whole staff machinery underneath everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's caucus and there's um, kind of the more political layer of, of every public service. Uh, but then there's this whole huge bureaucratic machinery underneath uh, <laughs> underneath all of that that is kind of being activated all the time or is kind of working on these ongoing bigger projects. And I feel like um, I've seen a few instances where that's been successfully activated through these sorts of things. And mm-hmm. I'll just I'll throw a few ideas on top of the pile here about about how that can be done. So, idea idea one, I guess this one's this one's fairly straightforward, and it has a lot to do with political timing. Uh, basically, when there is when there is an an election that's just happened or some big announcement or something like this, that that minister is now responsible for dealing with or or creating a new division, or who knows what, um, that is a huge opportunity for outside organizations. Like, it's just massive. There's mm-hmm. there's so much that can be done there. Um, a, you can come, you can basically come into that meeting, and if you've spent, 
you know, maybe a day of research looking at various uh, news releases that uh, that uh, minister and uh, his ministry staff have been putting out um, and kind of scanning through and seeing what their top priorities are. If you're lucky enough to have some sort of mandate letter type thing, I know they do that in British Columbia and, yeah, and other sure. jurisdictions. These things basically are the marching orders for the civil servants uh, mm. working <laughs> in their day jobs on all sorts of things and expending tremendous energy and and amazing uh, amazing work towards solving problems, right? Um, if you're able to go into those meetings with that and say, hey, I know you have this problem, right? You're mm. trying to reach this goal. It's in your mandate letter. Or you just had this news release that says you're doing this. How about if we add to that by doing this? Or here's a way I think that we can hit that if we do this, right? If there's a way that somehow you can tie your project to that star, the politician is going to just, I mean that they'll they'll really find it quite helpful actually because yeah no doubt especially if it's in the beginning of some sort of um you know political term they're already scrambling for ideas from people they're already asking their staff what should we do on this uh, develop some solutions and if they hear uh from you know even one or two or three community groups that are actively engaged on something and may even be suggesting the same solutions to those problems they are going to really listen uh, to that <laughs> and then you'll hear That's about awesome. it you'll hear about it in in the trenches right you'll you might have people that will start working on those ideas um, beyond just that kind of caucus level so that's one and then a second one is less so the kind of political machinery facing side of things but more so the civil society facing side of things which is collaborating with other organizations in your community on these topics but not necessarily in a way where you're just coming into that conversation as an outside entity like we're volunteers for dogwood and we're thinking about doing this but actually joining nonprofit societies becoming boards of directors uh, becoming uh, uh, elected leaders of these nonprofit or other organizations through their annual general meetings things of this nature mm -hmm. And beginning to kind of percolate the fabric of civil society with this with this broader conversation, I think is also oh, incredibly yeah. key. And then not only are you having people coming through the dogwood funnel, but they're also actively representing these other organizations that are sharing that similar viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And even better, if those organizations are a little bit outside of the left-wing environmentalist bubble mm -hmm. so to speak right even better if they're like trophy hunters of bc or something you know whatever it sure, might be yeah. right where they're saying look we 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 have a shared interest in keeping these habitats ecologically sound and we want to make sure that that's a legacy for future generations to enjoy the sport that we you know whatever it might be there's yep. Yep. so many so many areas of overlap uh overlapping care as you called it earlier so anyways, those are some additional ideas that I just, I just could not help but throw <laughs> into the mix there. Well, I appreciate that. And, I, you know, I think there is a big one there about um, 
you know, and I'm not necessarily going to advocate that any of our volunteers who are listening do this, but um, it, it would be really interesting to sort of, you know, disseminate your uh, your alumni into the boards of directors of, of other organizations out there, especially ones that aren't, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have a, a big environmental bent. Because, I mean, you know, if we really are going to solve the climate crisis, then over the next dozen years, we have to radically transform the whole fabric of our society so that everything we do is focused on how do we reduce our carbon footprint in the way that we do what we do. So, I mean, you know, to think about like your local theater company, not-for-profit theater company, having, you know, someone on their board of directors who is just mm -hmm. constantly saying, and how can we present this art um, in such a way that we do it with half the carbon that we currently use, you know, um, is is really important, you know, and to do that with through all these different uh, aspects of our civil society um, is a really interesting uh, tactic to me. I think that's pretty cool. I, th you know, I think a good metaphor for our day and age is melting, right? Melting ice caps mm -hmm. and things like this. I'm just thinking on this on this right now. This is totally on the fly, so be prepared sure. for some unscripted stuff. I think really melting. It's about melting uh, the kind of boundaries between these organizations, melting what it means to, for instance, your example of having a having a theater company, um, you know, not only cutting their carbon emissions, but melting the fourth wall in their presentation or their uh, their theater production that they're doing and, and having a facilitated component to it where the audience gets engaged and they, they learn and they they connect with each other and they begin kind of practicing democracy a bit more. Like there's so many different ways that we can, uh, I guess what people would call it is innovate around these mm -hmm. existing structures and ways of yep. doing things that we have. But really, I mean, it's just melting. It's melting all these things down into uh, a more fluid state where we're able to begin having difficult conversations with people who don't necessarily share our beliefs and yet still beginning to move forward on those conversations yes. right that's the important yes, thing exactly. like we have to move forward we can't just keep being in our bubbles we can't i, I think you know but yeah bubbles are <laughs> uh bubbles are not a sustainable way to uh to be in our society anymore no so i like to as you know if you've heard previous episodes of the podcast uh, near the near the end of our conversation, and this has been a very good one, I must say, Adam, um, is is kind of do a bit of a rapid round, cool, uh, a rapid round question series where I ask you a bunch of different things. But I'm gonna kind of shift that a little bit because uh, because I'm now focusing on these archipelagos of a possible future with many of my conversations. And Dogwood Initiative is kind of an interesting archipelago of a possible future in many respects because it's it's like you guys are trying to create these little archipelagos these little teams that are that are taking action in their neighborhoods and and kind of maintain them and foster them and, and help them right mm -hmm. um so in many respects you guys are trying to uh, facilitate basically raising the continent of of a submerged sustainable future um the thing that all of these archipelagos are just the tip of, right? You're trying to create a society, a, a movement around people in BC that are striving to um, develop a more sustainable economy, um, you know, have 
have a more active democracy, have people engaged more directly in decision-making, so on and so forth. So, with that in mind, what kind of archipelago do you see Dogwood as? Is it one that's connecting with other archipelagos around the world? Are you working with other organizations, campaigns, things of this nature, doing similar work? Or are you guys kind of like a bit of a lone wolf, so to speak, just focusing on BC? I think one of the interesting things about just focusing on BC is that BC is this really weird outlier leader in North America. Um, you know, we were the first jurisdiction to adopt uh, a carbon tax and uh, start taking real concrete action on, uh, on uh, carbon reduction and climate change. Um, we have the opportunity in the next, uh, in the upcoming couple weeks, to become uh, the first North American jurisdiction with uh, proportional representation as opposed to a first-past-the-post system. Um, we're, uh, you know, we um, are on the forefront of a couple of really interesting trends in the 21st century. And, and so, you know, if we can, and again, this all comes back down to the hyperlocality, if we can work on making our community and our neighborhood and our backyard um, the very best that we can, um, we then become this really interesting leader that goes and, and sows those ideas into the rest of the world conversation, you know, or certainly the rest of the Canadian conversation, uh, hopefully the rest of the North American conversation um, about, wow, look at what these folks are doing out here um, to really, you know, take back local control over their economy and their democracy um, and do things in a way that are going to set them up well uh, going forward in future generations how can we emulate their model? How can we do what they're doing? Or even further, you know, just to be able to have a counter argument to, oh, no, we couldn't ever possibly, you know, for example, tax carbon. Well, yeah, you can. And you can actually have, you know, one of the strongest economies in Canada while you do it. Just look at what we do here in British Columbia. Um, you know, being a leader in this sort of way um, is really, like, I think it's just a testament to the hyperlocality. Um, you know, we can, we can win both sides of that question. Uh, we can be an archipelago, you know, we can be our own fun little island nation that's, you know, doing the things that we need to do, um, but at the same time be, a, you know, a, an example, a virtuous example to uh, the rest of the archipelago okay, out there. Okay. And so in that same kind of metaphor, uh, what do you see as the water around you? <laughs> oh, man. I, the, 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 I'm the, and this is the thing, it's the ever-shifting and and capricious waters of this social media landscape. Um, I think that's just the hugest thing for us is trying to figure out how do we master um, how do we master these waves that are that are new and constantly changing. Right. So the water for you is it's kind of the opportunity that that is presenting to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it used to be that we had this one ocean that connected us all, um, and it was read to us nightly by Peter Mansbridge. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> really, right? Like, I mean, that's, there used to be this objective reality that was given to us every night, um, and and now we know that you know it's it's fragmented. There are you know there are several different uh, several different bodies of water that we all swim in. Sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they don't. Uh, but we don't we don't know how to navigate those waters yet. Uh, and we're trying, and you know, I think we're doing well, very well within our our sector, um, but uh, but there's still a lot to be figured out. Okay, and one last one here. What do you see as uh, as the possible future way that we can scale efforts like Dogwoods faster? Sure. Um, 
we can go smaller. We can scale by going smaller, um, which means really at the end of the day, like focusing on finding that group of eight to 12 people um, and then reproducing that group, making it self-reproducing is the best possible way, right? Um, so that you, you know, you have these groups that are taking action and being effective and then cloning themselves and finding more people uh, to join the party. That's, you know, that's the kind of work we got to do. Awesome. That's great. That's great, Adam. Thank you so much for, uh, for this enlivening conversation. I hope it was, uh, everything you were hoping for. Um, oh, it's, it's and been my more, pleasure. Thank you. And more. Yeah. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope we can have more in the future, uh, because I feel like this, the story that Dogwood's telling and that other organizations like it are telling is just, uh, beginning to be read. And there's many more chapters to be written. I'm with all these metaphors well, today. This is it's a high metaphor day. It's great. It's working. <laughs> but check in with me next year, and we'll see where things have gone. If there's one thing I've learned, you know, one thing I've learned following the Dogwood story, it's mm -hmm. been that uh, everything changes every year. It'll be fascinating. There's a new strategic landscape every every year. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. totally true. Okay, thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash working together. Your monthly contributions help make the show a sustainable thing. And the best part about it is that you get to join a global community of fellow change makers, an online community of practice, so to speak, for making awesome stuff happen in your communities. Because I don't just want you to listen to these stories. I want you to make your own. Join me. It's so easy on the internet to just uh, sit back and consume, to listen to things, to read things, to watch things. And I, I used to be this way myself. I, I didn't always have a podcast. I didn't always try to blog or write things or put things out there. Um, but I can't tell you how meaningful it is uh, as a creator online as somebody who's putting things out there into the world to hear from listeners to hear from people who uh, are listening to the show and get some value from it um, or even have some constructive feedback to offer to make it better um, I can't tell you how amazing it is when I hear from you guys so I want to encourage you guys to reach out to me in any way any form you like. I'm on Instagram. Uh, just search for my name, Stefan.Morales. I'm on the uh, the Twitter. Actually, I don't use Twitter hardly ever, rarely check it. So uh, that's such a good one. Um, I'm also uh, on Patreon, as I mentioned earlier. That's a great way to connect with me. Um, and then, of course, uh, email. Email's good. I like to uh, like to connect with people over email. So that's just my name, Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, at TogetherWorking.com. You can just uh, say, hey, uh, tell me what you think about the show, uh, your favorite episode, this sort of thing. And then, uh, of course, let us not forget, let us not forget um, the iTunes uh, 
podcast review thingamabob, which if if you review the show and you provide some stars on there and then a little, you know, uh, blurb about the show, uh, it helps the show get discovered more. So that's really helpful um, for people because what I'm doing with working together is really trying to pump out the jams for a better world, uh, share stories, share tools, insight, whatever you want to call it, that will help people uh, do the good big work that we know we need to do to pull ourselves out of the uh, the catastrophe that is slowly building around us and into our future. So the time is now, the time is right for that kind of work. And what better way to show your support for me than by just saying, hey, through the internets, be less anonymous, connect with me.